Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague, Alexa Tollett. Alexa, how's it going? It's going pretty well, Yoel. How are you? I'm great. I've been enjoying the lovely Montreal summer. We saw some circus performers yesterday. I smoked a cigar in the park today. It's been amazing. That's great. I'm happy to hear that. Um, yeah, I was. Uh, I have not been smoking cigars. Um, not because I don't love smoking cigars, but because smoking a cigar in 100 degree weather just seems like un- unpleasant. Um, but I'm happy for you. <laughs> Thanks, Alexa. Anytime you want to come up here and smoke cigars with me, you know, doors open. I would honestly love that. That sounds great. Okay, yep. give me give me 24 hours notice to get the cigars, get on a plane, do it. <laughs> I want a cigar that costs more than $20. Though. I, want, <laughs> I don't want the cheap ones that you buy. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, if you're flying all the way in from Tuscaloosa, I think I could, you know, take it off to 30, 35, maybe. Very nice. Um, I did want to tell you one thing, Yoel. So I switched browsers recently. Um, and normally when I try to find this Zoom link, I just type Yoel into my browser window and it brings up your Zoom link. Um, but today I did that. And because I don't have that browser history, I got whatever happens when you cold Google Yoel. Um, and do you know who Yoel Romero is? Uh, does he have something to do with the ACLU? No, he's a, a Cuban mixed martial artist. Um, and he wow. looks way cooler than you. Yeah. Um, so I mean, low bar, that... to be honest. <laughs> But yeah, that's um that's the first UL that comes up for me. Yeah, well, I can aspire to be half as cool, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that still sounds like a high bar, but I don't know. I don't know much about this person, so let's just let's just stop that there. Okay, so today um we are very lucky to have um two of my colleagues here as guests, um Jenny Cox and Lauren Coyce. Um, and these two are co-directors of the Southern Behavioral Health and Law Initiative. But before I um, before I go into my introductions, welcome both of you. Thank you for having us. Hi, Alexi. You know I do anything for you, so I'm happy to be here. <laughs> um, so that second voice was Jenny Cox, um, and who is an associate professor at UA with me in the psychology department. Um, And her work, which we'll talk more about today, examines the interplay between psychological assessment and the legal system. Um, She is incidentally also an amazing mom um, and she can deadlift. I wish I knew how much you can actually deadlift, but it's like a ridiculous amount of weight. Um, So yeah, she's an all around all star. And uh, Lauren Coyce is uh, an assistant professor at UA. Um, Her work also focuses on assessment, particularly how we evaluate competence to stand trial, which is something we'll talk about a lot about today, um, and mental state at the time of offense. Um, she's also a music aficionado um, and stands out to me as somebody who writes the most compelling recommendation letters I've ever seen. Like she knows exactly where to put the bolds and just like, you know, every time I read, I'm not sure if it's because of the quality of the research or the the letter writing, but every time I read a recommendation letter for him or her, I'm like, this person needs to get this award or needs to get this money. Um, that means so, yeah. so much to me. It really does. <laughs> I really go wild on those things. So thank you for the recognition. It has the impact I want. Very good. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an, um, a very important skill, actually a very meaningful um, thing to be good at. Slightly um, psychopath as well. Just <laughs> <laughs> Well, so this is, I, I feel like, uh, really a reason to question 
the validity of letters of recommendation. Because like, imagine student A has Alexa writing a letter for them and they'll say, eh, seems okay. Student B <laughs> equally good. Uh, Lauren writes the letter and they're like, oh yeah, slam dunk. That's yeah. a fair question. The The secret is just really being like real. Like if you're talking to your psychologist friend over a beer and you want to know what the student is like, making it very personalized and lots of bold strategically. Just put them, to be Frank's in there. <laughs> oh, to be Frank. Right. Right. We're like, oh, now she's given us the real shit. Yeah. It's like, to be <laughs> Frank, this person is incredible. <laughs> that sounds so convincing to me. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Alexa, before we move on, do you think Jenny has like proportional to body weight, the best deadlift of any of our guests? A hundred percent. No questions asked. Yeah. <laughs> I just started a new workout routine that isn't weight heavy. So we'll see maybe in like a couple of weeks, I won't be able to get less much, much anymore. But wow. I love Alexa that we've been friends for like seven years. And that's what you chose to say about me. <laughs> you know, all of our heart to heart talks. And yeah, but the, that, that's fine. I'll take it. I'm secretly really happy. You know, it's an important fact. And uh, what our listeners want to know is how much can you tell them? That should be like a new guest question. You know, anytime we have somebody on. I love that idea. We can put that in the show notes, just like what everybody did. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so do we want to talk about drinks? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do um, it. I'll go first. I've got a Sun Lab. Um, it's called Turn Your Magic On. And it's described as an American sour ale with raspberry, marshmallow, and vanilla. So I'm going out on a limb here. Wow. That could be really good or really gross. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking that it might have like beer float vibes, like the creamy aspect. So Which you're into. I'm into that. Yeah. So we'll see. Excellent. Um, So Lauren, I know you are debating between several different things you might drink. Where did you land? I ended up going with a dark and stormy. And it's delicious. I'm happy with my choice. I did a little dance when I poured it and tasted it. So I definitely went the right way. Great. That is a summer classic, in my opinion. And finally, Jenny, what are you up to? Yeah. So I had planned on drinking my most favorite beer of all time as Good People IPA. Good People is in a small craft brewery in Birmingham. And their IPA is perfect. And I didn't have any in my fridge. Um, so I'm drinking just like a white wine that I stole from a neighbor. Okay. Like I need some booze and they gave me white wine. Well, we appreciate your willingness to improvise for the show. And you can plug the beer regardless. So I feel like that works out. And a small part of me is hoping that um, good people listen and then like send us beer. Yes, um, please send our guests beer. Excellent. Um, and I have a Bohemian Pilsner from Unibrew. I forget whether I've had this on the show before or not, but it's just kind of like a standard Pilsner, but it's a it's a nice one. And on a warm day, it's kind of what you want. All right. Alexa, open? are you going to crack it open? I, I've already been drinking mine. <laughs> Can you taste the marshmallow? Totally. Uh, I was kind of hoping that this would be bad because I feel like every time I take a sip of a beer. I'm like, oh, it's pretty good. Um, and our listeners aren't getting a lot of like, you know, um, insightful reviews about beer tastes, but I think that's pretty good. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I mean, you do have to wonder whether it's your agreeable Canadian-ness shining through here. Yeah. It's like, is the beer good or is it just Alexa? You know? Yeah, exactly right. Is just this like student kind of mediocre or is it just Alexa writing the letter? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, Alexa, do you want to get started? 
All right. So I wanted to start uh, by asking you to tell me the story of how you started the Southern Behavioral Health and Law Initiative. Sure. So I came to the University of Alabama in 2014. And when I got here, it became really obvious really quickly, very quickly that um, there was a um, just a desert of forensic mental health care in the state um, and really in the entire region. So um, when we say forensic, we're really meaning anybody who is um, involved with the criminal legal system. Um, and so that could be anybody who interacts with law enforcement um, or has a criminal charge. Um, forensic can also mean civil. Uh, we don't do space. So like a civil lawsuit, but Lauren and I don't really do work in that space as much. Um, and there's just no care here um, for that population. Um, and this is despite there being a really amazing program in psychology law at the University of Alabama that's been around since 1970. Um, and despite the fact that Tuscaloosa specifically has um, a state psychiatric hospital, a forensic psychiatric hospital, the VA hospital here in Tuscaloosa. Um, and there just wasn't a lot. Um, and uh, I was really fortunate to know some folks who um, are involved with the University of Virginia's Institute for Law, Psychiatry, and Public Policy. Um, they are the best of the best in the field, and they really know their stuff. Um, Lauren actually worked there for some time. Um, and so we I, I looked at that model. We looked at that model um, that they have going on at UVA, and we said, um, you know, how can we bring a model like that, but adapt it for what our needs are here in Alabama and in the Southeast. Um, and so, you know, I said to Lauren, I think it was 2017, I was like, I have this big, silly idea. And Lauren, the rock star she is, was like, we're going to do this. Um, and really gave me the confidence to try and pursue it. Um, so that's what we started to do. We started to try and bring together people across the community, across the state and across the university who are doing work in this space um, and tried to get lots of heads together, um, lots of perspectives, lots of expertise, people with lived experience. Um, we tried to get as many people involved um, to help grow quality forensic mental health care, quality forensic mental health research here in the South. Um, and we were so, so fortunate last year to receive funding from the Sozose Foundation, who has just been unwavering in their support for um, the decriminalization of mental illness. Um, yeah, so that's how we got moving and grooving. Did I miss anything, Lauren? I think so. Sounds good to me. We're stoked to have a bunch of students from undergrad to grad um, working on a lot of our projects, both research-wise, clinically, and advocacy-wise, um, to try to bring more attention to this underserved group um, and also increase the workforce because it's, mm -hmm. it's severely so, lacking. So, Jenny, you used a phrase uh, a minute ago that jumped out at me, which is the criminalization of mental illness. Can you unpack that a little bit and say what you mean there? Oh, sure. Um, so... <laughs> um, Without going too much into the history of um, criminalization of mental illness, because I could be on a soapbox all night about this, um, in the 1960s, uh, we have a long history of institutionalizing, long history of institutionalizing people who have mental illness, right? We don't, who have severe mental illness, we don't know how to deal with it. We haven't historically known how to deal with it. So 
we put them in institutions. Um, we put these people in institutions and then um, with horrific conditions and you can read lots of books about it, it was terrible. In that it started to improve with um, the advent of psychotropic medication, um, with the advancements in therapy. And in the 1960s, there was a push to deinstitutionalization. So the idea was that individuals could be treated in the community where they'd have their support systems, where they would have their lives and their worlds, and they could be treated with medication, they could be treated with psychotherapy um, in the community. That is a wonderful, noble idea. And I think could happen, except we didn't then put the resources into creating the community infrastructure to support people being treated in the community. Um, so within 30 or 40 years, probably even sooner, I think I was being generous, probably within 10, 10 to 15 years, um, we see that folks who are no longer receiving medication in a hospital um, are now um, in places where they don't have the support and the treatment that they need in the community. And they are um, criminalized for it. So they might be interacting with law enforcement because they are um, they're, they're not homed at the moment. They might be interacting with law enforcement because they're very sick at the moment and they're disorganized um, and not making sense. So maybe they are um, scaring their family members or, or scaring folks um, out in the community. And so law enforcement are coming in because people feel afraid um, or feel as though social norms are being broken. And these individuals are then being brought into the criminal legal system as opposed to receiving mental health treatment. Um, and we did that for a while, uh, didn't work, uh, isn't working. Um, I'm hopeful that we, that we're kind of trying to turn a corner and, and not go back to institutionalization. Nobody wants that, but I don't know, maybe actually put the resources into the community to support the people. Um, novel idea. Given the way that things currently are, let's say we're talking about Tuscaloosa specifically, so let's say one of these situations that you're describing arises, Jenny, where let's say somebody is breaking social norms or or even rules um, and they perhaps have uh, some kind of like mental health issue or mental illness. Um, what are the different paths that you can go to from there? So like let's say somebody notices this and, and thinks it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's really going to depend on, um, kind of in, on the situation. Um, again, a scientist, so I'm always hedging my bets, right? I'm always making sure I'm never saying anything too definitively. If you have someone who is, um, in public and they, or, or in, in their house, but they, um, uh, individuals feel threatened the, or, uh, you could have law enforcement called, right? So if law enforcement are called and, and show up. Law enforcement's job is safety. That's that's their that's what they are supposed to be aiming for. So their goal is supposed to be to keep everybody safe. If law enforcement perceive that somebody is not safe, their job is to intervene. So if you have somebody who is in crisis, who is um, maybe psychotic at the time, um, wanting to die by suicide, you have somebody who's really in crisis at the time, 
law enforcement may intervene and arrest that individual for the purposes of taking them to jail and keeping them safe or for the purposes of keeping individuals around them safe. Um, I've never seen jail to make somebody less psychotic. Um, Instead, what we find then is that we have individuals who are in crisis who are, um, as soon as they're arrested, becoming involved in the criminal legal system. So they're catching charges and they are going through the legal process, the adjudicative process, which is costly and uh, costly in many ways. Um, An individual might get arrested because they are wanting to die by suicide. They spend two weeks in jail before they are released because they had made threats to police. So they were arrested two weeks until they're released. And in the time they've lost their job, they've lost their housing. They no longer have their social support network. It's, it's, um, it does more harm than good. Um, these are our folks who are in crisis. What we see more of are folks who have mental illness, who are potentially engaging in like low level offenses. So, um, maybe they're drunk in public. I had someone that I evaluated once who had, was evaluated for urinating in public or was it, was arrested for urinating in public. Um, so these low level offenses, um, but these individuals, um, aren't necessarily a danger for themselves or someone else, but they're committing low level offenses or allegedly committing low level offenses and then, and then subsequently getting arrested. And once folks get to jail across the country, there's, very little access to mental health treatment in jails. So sometimes you'll have a psychiatrist, usually you'll have a social worker, but there's very little access to mental health treatment. So they're not going to jail for rehabilitation. They're basically going to jail to sit there until their case is resolved. So currently, is there any point at which uh, there's an intervention? So somebody in charge notices, hey, this person who is arrested for, let's say, urinating in public, has some underlying mental health problems, and that ought to be addressed? Or is it just like, you know, they churn them through just like anybody else, and, you know, once you've served your time, you've done your week in jail or whatever, you're back out on the street? So there's a couple different models right now that um, some of them are very, very promising, but in terms of are they moved along like everybody else and then put back on the street? Yes. Um, And a lot of this, you know, the decriminalization theory is kind of controversial because there's been some studies about testing it fancy ways that I won't get into, but there's actually a really small portion of people that kind of fit that model. And part of the idea is that we're having more people be traumatized and psychosis is associated with traumatization. We're having less social services in terms of like substance use. And so if those are the kind of things that are getting people involved in the system and then we're putting them back out in the system, it's just not effectual at all. Um, In Texas, which is a huge state, right? They have a huge, huge endeavor where they're getting mental health screening um, quickly and much more thoroughly than a lot of states are um, for folks trying to identify those with mental illness to try to get them out of the pipeline. That's a really big endeavor because it it is Texas, Um, but most places aren't like that. Um, Some are. Some places are really progressive in trying to get people, funnel them out of the general jail population and back into the community and diversion programs, Um, but it's it's kind of a a slow crawl. (laughs) 
Yeah, for, I'm for kind of curious. Doing that. Um, this is a little bit more of a question about politics, maybe. So Texas obviously is a red state. Um, I noticed that the way that you guys are talking about this is the way that liberals would like, right? We talk about decriminalization and we talk about um, mm, lifestyle or nonviolent offenses in a way that's a bit minimizing. Whereas for people who are into law and order, yeah, somebody pissing on the street is profoundly upsetting, right? It's like a real breakdown in social norms and violent or not, they don't like it. So I wonder whether people have thought about, well, how do you sell this to like the median voter? And is it the case that you can make an argument that's more about effectiveness, right? It just doesn't make sense to put these people in jail and then release them again and kind of continue the cycle rather than doing something that's going to work better to prevent that sort of behavior. Um. To be fair, there's this great paper called People with Serious Mental Illness Have Criminogenic, Criminogenic Needs Too by Jen Scheme. And it's saying, hey, we're not saying that everybody's like perfect angels and they, you know, just need treatment. Like there are people that have criminogenic motives. It's 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 not um, kind of that people like me and Jenny are trying to say that everyone should get a free pass because there's a lot of rehabilitation and consequences that people you know, need to, we're not face. trying to give out hugs um, instead of punishment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, one, you know, being advocates for public policy about a lot of this stuff. So like that movement in Texas, like that's public policy. Um, we'll, you know, talk about some of the hospital lawsuits I'm sure in a little bit, that's public policy and a way for us to get people's ear. A lot of the time is this is going to save you money. Um, and in the long run, it's going to keep your jails from being overcrowded and it will lead to more public safety and security um, in the future. However, people need to be on board to get the long view, right? Because it's not like an automatic thing that can happen immediately. But I often find myself going for the money angle when I am talking about public policy. Does it not cost any more money? Are people saying stay safe? And can it help better people's lives with mental illness? Those are kind of the three things. Yeah, so it sounds on. like you guys are pretty strategic about framing your communications in a way that's going to resonate with people who don't necessarily share your assumptions or maybe your political views. Yeah, and in terms of you know changing language from criminal justice to criminal legal, I've also moved from saying defendant to saying the accused. Uh, which, you know, think about like how different that sounds. Like some people have said like, oh, well, it sounds kind of like you're, you know, being sympathetic or you're being hysterical because defendant is so bad. And it's like, well, if it means so much to switch from defendant to accused when they are accused, that's what's happening. You know, what does that say about like how words matter and all of the implicit stuff that goes behind how we talk about this? Um, and I will say that when I talk to some folks, I am less likely to say accused because it is kind of small steps and I don't want that, you know, oh, they want to give everyone a free pass kind of thing. Um, and so you have to be strategic, strategic about some of the language that you use. I'm always using criminal legal system from now on, um, regardless of who I'm talking to, but the accused thing can be kind of confusing and get a lot more eyebrows, which I think does not help me if I'm trying to talk 
to people that yeah. So we had talked me. about criminal legal system uh, earlier uh, off air. So just for our listeners who probably aren't going to be familiar with this terminology, what's the thinking behind it, and what kind of reaction have you gotten from people? Uh, started hearing it more and more last year. Um, so definitely coinciding with a lot of the social justice recognition that we've had over the last couple of years, social injustice, social unrest, racism, white supremacy, um, and the nexus of that on mental illness. Um, so there's a triple stigmatization for people involved in the forensic system. They've got serious mental illness. They're more likely to be of lower social class, have less money. They're more likely to be people of color. All of those things coalescing together. Like this is a really disadvantaged group that needs stuff. Um, they're not getting treated justly as they should be. So there started to be this movement towards criminal legal system, um, which I will say came from my doctoral advisor that really got me on board with that, pretty Shohan. Uh, and people just started saying it more and more. And it was really exciting when we got to our conference in March that people were recognizing the criminal justice system is not just um, that's really been hammered home over the last couple years. Um, and so there has been this move towards criminal legal system. Jenny and I uh, worked with um, an amazing uh, ex-law enforcement chief who now works for the LEAD program, um, which is used to be called Let Everyone Advance with Dignity. It's a forensic outreach program. Um, so he'd been the chief of police in New York, and he said, you know what, I'm really going to go about this, trying to fix this decriminalization of mental illness. And a police, like an ex-police chief is saying criminal legal system. You will not hear him say criminal justice system. Like that's striking. That's really like moving and inspiring. Um, and so if he can do it, the rest of us can do it. Definitely. I think too, like the important, that there's an important piece there. All, you know, Lauren and I are interacting with lots of folks in the mental health community and the law enforcement community and the correctional community here in Alabama and across the deep South. Right. And Absolutely no one that is doing this work is like, let's lock everybody up and throw away the key. Um, instead, the folks who are doing this work are really like they recognize that the revolving door of arresting someone for a minor offense or arresting someone who's really sick and not providing them any sort of rehabilitation or treatment letting them releasing that person and, and then seeing them again in a few weeks, a few months time, it's not working. This, this model is not working. And our, the folks that we're working with in this, in, in this space, many of them are politically very conservative. Um, although I, you know, I have to say I haven't checked their voter registration cards, but I would venture a guess based on some other conversations we've had. And there, when you've worked in this space, if you've interacted with someone with mental illness or someone in crisis, um, it, the, it, it, it's much easier to see how um, criminalizing somebody's illness, it, it's how not only is that not working, but it's really inhumane and antithetical to what we as a society say we want to do. Um, so I totally get the like, you know, conservative, liberal, and I really think that um, this this can transcend those political spectrums um, if you can actually have people, if people actually engage with what the issue is. 
So this reminds me of a conversation that we've had um, on this podcast previously, where we've talked about the idea of activist research. Um, so this like this conversation has made me wonder. Um, I've wanted to ask you from from the beginning if you consider yourselves um, activist researchers, and so it's obvious that you you do work that has um, fairly direct practical implications for the legal system. Um, so yeah, you can. I guess you, I could see the activism angle there. Um, but now also given what you have just been talking about, I'm wondering like, can you be an activist researcher, um, but also not have that be sort of polarizing? I have a couple things, um, to, to say about that. Um, so one, just to taking a step back is Jenny and I are clinicians and we're researchers, and we're advocates, mentors, all those kinds of things that professors do. Um, so in our clinical work, we do get cases where we're our findings are saying this person is very likely going to be dangerous again in the future. This person um, is feigning or exaggerating their mental illness, things that are we know are not going to look good in front of a judge. So we are doing those things that do not feel good, but that's what ethically, objectively, our clinical science is telling us when we conduct an evaluation. Um, so there is this kind of like interesting divide between, yeah, like I've made opinions before and someone has been sentenced to 20 years, whether it was me or not. You know, I reported the fact of the matter of what was going on with this person, what their history was like, and why their criminogenic pattern of behavior kept continuing. Then we've got the other side where we're fighting for no one is as bad as the worst thing that they've ever done. And I'm going to fight for these people to be treated as humanely and respectfully, not stigmatized, not infantilized as I can. Um, and, you know, as Jenny was saying, if people have a problem with that, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Um, a lot of that stuff, I think, can transcend lines of politics. Um, when you start getting into some of the other stuff, um, like not involving police at all uh, in crisis calls, this is something that I'm actually really struggling with uh, lately ethically. Alexa and you all, I'd love to get your perspective on this. Um, in places where it's just not realistic to have models where clinicians only will respond to people in crisis. Um, so there's um, a program in the Northwest called Cahoots. It's been in operation for decades the police are not responding to mental health crisis. It's trained civilians. No one has been seriously injured in decades. Um, people really love the program. It's gotten a lot of attention lately. That would be, I think that that would be amazing if we could have civilian or clinician only responding to these kinds of scenarios so a gun and violence are not introduced. However, in Alabama, I know that that's not happening for a very, very long time. Um, and so I do teach uh, mental health training to police throughout Alabama. And a lot of my colleagues would say, you're supporting the criminalization of mental illness. You're encouraging law enforcement to show up to these things. And I'm kind of like, I mean, I'm an advocate, but I also have the context of like what's real and happening in front of me and for probably the next five to 10 years in Alabama. So tell me what to do. Yeah, well, tell me what to do. I only have questions to start. So I guess my first question is, maybe this is obvious, I'm not sure, but why is this far away in Alabama? 
Um, I love some of my colleagues, um, my law enforcement colleagues. We're very split on this. Um, and it's because of this stigma that people with mental illness are violent. So what I say when I teach the cops is no one calls you guys when things are awesome. Nobody. That's not what we do. People call you when things are bad, when things are scary, when someone's going to get hurt, when someone's doing something wrong. And so if the constant like presentation that you have of people with mental illness is that kind of thing, it's somewhat understandable why law enforcement would think people with mental illness are dangerous, they're troublemakers. Um, they're, you know, they're not trained clinicians. They're not trained to handle people. So it's not totally surprising that sometimes these things can get out of hand. The person can become more escalated, so on and so on. Um, but in Alabama, I would say there's very much of a paternalistic idea um, that someone's going to get hurt if police don't come. And even though in places you know, like Cahoots and many other areas that are doing civilian-only responding models, people aren't getting hurt. There really is that strong belief here in Alabama, and so I'm trying to work with it instead of sitting it out yeah, and I mean, doing anything. That does, as somebody who doesn't know anything about this, it does seem kind of counterintuitive that this has been done for 20 years and nobody's been hurt, right? Because of exactly what you're saying, like people call, well, now the police and under an alternative model, somebody else, when there's kind of a crisis. And so I kind of imagine sending a civilian into a situation that might be kind of a powder keg where somebody leave mental illness out of it for a second is maybe upset, is kind of freaking out, right? And putting somebody who's not armed into that situation seems like it really might put them into danger. And a lot of it, just because I can get nerdy psychology with you all, is like, think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. A lot of times when cahoots and these civilian responding models are, are showing up to people in crisis, they've got a granola bar. They've got a blanket. They're like, come get in the van. We'll take you where you need to go. Like a lot of these things are just kind of like survival or, or just having someone listen to you um, rather than, okay, we're going to put you in handcuffs and take you X, Y, or Z because it's police policy. If someone's in the back of the car, almost always that um, police department requires that that person be handcuffed and, that's and painful really and un like uncomfortable. It's not, if you're very uncomfortable, if you're in crisis and you're handcuffed, you're not calming down. Um, I think, Lauren, one thing, and you and I should talk about this more, and we haven't had a conversation about this recently. I think one thing that I think about when um, I come, when, like, with Alexa's question is the, um, how persuasive, how, maybe persuasive isn't the term, how um, impactful can we be if we're seen or perceived to be advocating one side or the other, right? And I will agree with Lauren's description of um, clinical work, I strive to be, to come in as much of a blank slate as is humanly possible, which we all know is not humanly possible um, at all, but I, I try and I seek out supervision usually for Lauren um, when I, I'm having feelings, right? So clinical work is one thing. I think with the research and how it ties to advocacy, um, I think prior to 2020, I had the like, well, it's so important that I try and be as unbiased as possible. 
And then 2020 happened and I was like, fuck everything. I'm going to, I'm going to chase what I think is important and how I think I can do the most good in the world and stop caring about anything else. Um, and I think, so like Lauren talked, Lauren was talking about like working then within the system, right? So if my ultimate goal, if I really believe that we need to decriminalize mental illness, that folks who are seriously mentally ill should not be arrested, should not have police responding to their crisis. That might be my, you know, fuck everything, burn it to the ground goal. And as Lauren smartly put, like, and also we have to work in the real world. And if we want to get anything accomplished, we have to do it within the systems that we're working at. And so on the one hand, I really appreciate my colleagues, my friends who are like burn it to the ground and who are or who are approaching the problem from that direction. Where we are with our initiative, where we are with the work that we're doing right now is trying to take what we know works from the research, what we know science and data say, trying to understand it through the lens of how we think and feel as our own, as who we are as human beings look at it from the broader perspective of what society says and then execute it within the community that we're in. Um, I just got like super meta there too. I know people who are listening can't hear, but my hands were moving and there were, there were many levels. Her hands are indicating different There's levels. so many levels. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway. So yeah, I mean, I, I think the piece of working within the system that you're in, it, that's where we're at right now. Yeah. I, when you, when you said Lauren, like, oh, I have this, this conflict. Um, that's something that I've thought about within the realm of like the corrections system in Alabama. So I think that there are, um, people in Alabama who are abolitionists and who like, so they, people who want to get rid of prisons essentially. And they approach that by like, b basically like having a hard line, burn it to the ground. I'm not going to have anything to do with corrections. And then there are other people who are like, I would like to burn it to the ground, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So I'm going to work within that system to try to make it better. Um, and I guess like, I think I like admire people who do both. And I think we, you know, both are valuable. Um, and also from like, from my observations, it's like sort of hard to switch between the two. Um, so if you're trying to work within a system, um, then you're going to undermine your goals. If you're like also yelling, like burn it to the ground on your Twitter or something like that. Um, so I think it's hard to, to switch between the two, but I, th yes, both seem, seem valuable to me. I guess the stuff that we've talked about previously really has to do with research integrity and the fact that in order to make a persuasive argument, people have to trust that the research you're citing is done by people who won't put their thumb on the scales for ideological reasons. And if people see this research as coming from a movement of people who have kind of an explicit ideological goal, then I think that really undermines the persuasiveness of the data, right? We're speaking with a mantle of scientific authority of saying the data show this, and we can recommend empirically that you do this because... and. If people think, well, there are a bunch of ideological hacks whose studies just show what they want them to, then that just like, I mean, it's a, it's a real, forget ethically, just pragmatically, it's a real problem of being able to convince people. 
But this is where Yoel and I disagree on this topic because I think we're all ideological hacks. Um, and so I'm just like, oh, well, I guess the best case scenario is that we're like sort of transparent about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I obviously see, um, see Yoel's point that we're, um, often as scientists, we're presenting our ideas as though they're objective or even if we aren't, um, they're being received with that sort of like added badge of credibility. And so, um, so yeah, I think there's, we have some responsibility to, to make sure people aren't being like misled in terms of our motives or biases or something like that. Yeah. I'm of the, like, we're all ideological hacks and we can all continue trying to not be like, we can all keep trying to be better. Um, like a recent example, Lauren and I have done this study where we were looking at why attorneys are referring um, individuals accused of crimes for competency to stand trial evaluation. So this, this specific type of forensic evaluation that looks at whether or not they can proceed with their case. And Lauren and I had a theory that like, well, I don't know if we ever articulated this theory. My theory in my head, I'm not going to put Lauren, I'm not going to throw her under the bus with me, but my theory in my head was that the attorneys like don't know anything about mental health. And so they're just referring everybody. And then when we looked at the data, that wasn't actually the case. Attorneys were like pretty savvy. It's almost like they went to law school. Um, and there were still kind of areas that we could target to make their referrals um, more valid and make their referrals better. Um, but, you know, we presented that data at our conference and said like, Hey, look, attorneys actually kind of know what, like, kind of know what we're doing over here. And maybe like this little piece that, that does it, here's how we can affect the change here. Here's how we can do better. Um, and it's humbling, right? You have to, I think you have to be willing to say that you're wrong and that you actually don't know. Um, which with someone with in, perpetual imposter syndrome, I'm more than happy to do all of the time. Um, but it, but that's a hard as a human, as a human being, that's hard to do. That level of that is, you know, when you're training to be a forensic evaluator and knowing that any evaluation you do, you can end up testifying about. Um, the sage wisdom is saying you don't know is wise. <laughs> if you don't know, instead of doubling down and acknowledging when you're wrong, instead of getting defensive, because every clinical interaction we have, we know we could end up testifying. I think that is in the back of our head for a lot of researchy stuff. Um, of course, we're still biased. There's a whole area of literature on that um, when it comes to doing evaluations and testifying. Um, but I think that constant say you don't know, reasonable minds can disagree, that's ingrained in us um, as forensic trainees is really helpful and generalizes to other professional things so, that we do. Um, a little way, ways back, Jenny, you mentioned um, incompetence to stand trial or competence to stand trial um, and evaluations. And I want to talk more about that, but um, is this a good spot for a break? This is a great spot. I'm, I finished my beer. Okay. Perfect timing. I had a sense. Uh, you and me, we've been doing this for long enough that, you know, we're on the same wavelength. That's like, Yoel has his, I need a new beer face. That man looks thirsty.
Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod, where you can at mention or DM us. If you'd rather email, our show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Finally, our website is fourbeers.com. You can find all of our episodes there and drop us a line there as well. If you like, if you're enjoying the show, uh, please take a second to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, which just helps other people discover the show. Alexa, what's your beer situation? Um, I'm still drinking the same beer, but it's 9.4%. So. Oh, Jesus. Wow. I'm just okay. kidding. It's I hot. Think... It's only 5.7. You sold it. Yeah, I'm, I'm very gullible. I don't know. You just have a trustworthy <laughs> face. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but anyway, you. it is correct that you're still drinking the same beer. That's right. Excellent. All right. Uh, Lauren, what's up with you? I'm just on Dark and Stormy number two. Wow. In my that, is, that is a big glass. glass. Okay. It's a, <laughs> Again, it's like, it's a All right. Great. Way to go, Lauren. Really leading into the theme. Um, and and, and Jenny, you have your one true beer. My, yeah. Birmingham. Good people brew, brewing IPA. It's amazing. I will just Go drink it. Note for the listeners that she is sort of cuddling up to the beer in a very <laughs> sweet and loving way. And uh, I have this Boreal uh, Blonde Pale Ale, which I found in the fridge. I think it is a party remnant, and I've been trying to clear those out. So this seems like as good a time as any. Uh, let me just try not to spill this everywhere. Oh, that's good. All right. Um, so let's see. Uh, where were we at, Alexa? Yeah. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this article that was in the APA Monitor recently. Um, the title is Standing Tall, A New Age for Incompetency Cases. It's written by Tori DeAngelis. Um, and this features some of um, Lauren and Jenny's work. So uh, just like a, if I can try to briefly summarize the article, um, the article talks about an increase in the number of people who are found to be incompetent to stand trial. So what this means is um, people are found to be, I guess, un unable to assist in their own defense, right? So things like having um, informed conversations with their lawyers about, you know, like how they would like their trial to proceed and things like that. Um, and the article talks about the, um, the process through which people go um, when they are uh, their competency to stand trial is is questioned. Um, so it describes sort of a typical scenario where a person might be arrested for a crime, um, potentially sort of a minor crime, as Jenny and Lauren have mentioned previously. So, for example, something like loitering or trespassing. Um, and then someone like a lawyer or a judge suspects that the person might be incompetent to stand trial. Um, at this point, an evaluation is ordered um, and the person waits often in jail until this evaluation is done. And then if they are found to be incompetent to stand trial, um, then they are sent to either a state hospital back to jail or to a community treatment center. Um, and at one of these places, they may get a competency restoration, which is training that focuses on helping them to navigate the legal system but sort of neglects more basic forms of mental health care. Um, and the article documents um, recent efforts by psychologists, um, including Lauren and Jenny, um, to sort of shift this process um, away from criminalization and um, towards more sort of basic mental health support. Um, 
So uh, my first question, well, first of all, is that a fair <laughs> summary of this article, would you say? Yeah, I mean, people usually don't know what competency is or think right. it's the same as sanity. Um, and so it's really exciting to hear people talk about it correctly <laughs> that, don't, that don't have the background because it's it's not the sexiest topic in the world. So I'm excited to see well, people I, I mean, about it. Previous to reading this APA Monitor article, I also read another article um, of yours, which was about um, competency to stand trial and also uh, sanity or um, what's the other term? Um, Mental right, state mental at the state time, of the, time of the offense. Um, and so I thought that was super exciting. And I was like, let's do a whole podcast about that. And Lauren was like, oh, that's the boring stuff. And at first I was like, no, it's not. It's so interesting. But then the stuff that she sent me was more interesting. Um, so I feel like we ended on the right one. Um, okay. So um, in terms of this process, when people are um, found to be uh, incompetent to stand trial or this is this is questioned, um, I think that we've had several students in our program um, do placements at uh, Taylor Hardin, which is a facility in Tuscaloosa um, that houses people who are waiting to be evaluated and also provides competency restoration services. Is that right? Mm -hmm. It's a state forensic hospital for okay, males in the state. So I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about um, what this facility is like, um, what your students' experiences working there are, if you know um, what the experiences of people who are um, being, I guess, detained there are like. Sure. So for Taylor Hardin, um, pretty much every state has you know a secure forensic facility um, or at least some wings of a state psychiatric hospital um, that do have forensic purposes. So in a forensic hospital, the bulk of the population is usually going to be people found incompetent um, and getting treatment, or they've been found incompetent and not restorable, meaning that uh, an evaluator and a judge has opined that they are never going to get to the point that they can actually um, have a meaningful understanding of their case um, and can consult with their attorney and their defense um, and move forward. So the proceedings that uh, for that are very much like being found not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, you're still in a forensic hospital. Um, you will get stepped down when you're thought to no longer be violent to yourself or other people um, and then kind of segue back into the community. So you've got those folks in the forensic hospital and then you might also have people that have history of sex offenses um, all mixed into the same hospital. Sometimes they're separated by unit, but not all the time. Um, so, you know, forensic hospitals are complex because they're a cross between an inpatient hospital and a jail. Um, and that creates a lot of safety um, and access issues, and it can be really hard to conduct treatment. Um, and a lot of places are really limited um, because of there's not enough correctional officers. There's not enough, you know, mental health techs to sit in on sessions, let alone actual clinicians to, you know, conduct interventions. So throughout the country, these are really strapped and under-resourced, which has contributed to a lot of lawsuits throughout the country um, for inadequate mental health treatment. Um, Alabama is one of those states. Um, there's a long wait list to get into Taylor Hardin. Alexa, as you mentioned, there can be people while they're awaiting to get their competency restoration, they could be sitting in jail. Um, and so there's quite a wait list to get into Hardin for inpatient treatment. 
Um, and it's really just a really high pressure situation. So we have a lot of students getting real life training there. Um, Jenny and I run a clinic there. We're also conducting a lot of research at Taylor Hardin. Um, and those treatment groups for the folks that are found incompetent are very much like, this is what the courtroom procedures are. Here's where the bailiff sits. How many people are in a jury? How do you consider a plea bargain? Meanwhile, all of that stuff is really tricky because you don't want someone to incriminate themselves while they're discussing this stuff. So sometimes it can be kind of a weird dance that it's a treatment setting, but also you could incriminate yourself. Um, our ethical guidelines are that you don't incriminate someone in a report. That's not the purpose of your report if you're evaluating their competency to stand trial. If someone's really psychotic and sick, they might not understand, you're not supposed to talk about that with me. Um, save that for your attorney. So a lot of times people are saying things that they probably wish they hadn't said, and you need to kind of dance around that and think about how you're going to navigate it and like your notes. So just a clarification like question. That. They have a wait list at this facility. So somebody comes in, they're, they're arrested. They're maybe incompetent to stand trial. The evaluation happens at the facility. There's a wait list. So in the meantime, what do they do with them? Are they just in the general jail population? Like, how's that work? So that first evaluation is happening in an outpatient setting. It's actually quite rare that people go straight to Taylor Hardin for that first evaluation. Um, so in Alabama, we have a set of evaluators that are going into the jail. A lot of people are doing Zoom evaluations um, before and after COVID, really. Um, but they're doing that first evaluation. They send their report to the court. And then if a judge founds, finds that someone's incompetent, then they're getting on that waiting list. Um, and I've consulted for several states across the country. It's not just us. Um, there's a lot of states um, that have been in lawsuits before us and continue to go along with us. Um, but that wait can be a year. Um, it can be six months. It varies for where you are, but if that person's found incompetent, they're usually going to be hanging out in a jail while they wait admission to the inpatient hospital. Um, as Jenny said, people aren't getting better in jails. Um, there's a movement that is also somewhat ethically conflicting of competency restoration in jails. Um, and I'm a big advocate for that because I've seen programs in jails that are honestly more therapeutic than a lot of forensic hospitals that I've been in. Um, the jail-based restoration program in Fulton County Jail, which is the jail for Atlanta, uh, is wonderful. I mean, all day programming, like hitting all of these notes in terms of like treatment recommendations. It's very like wraparound. It's very respectful, engaging. I went and did a program evaluation or visit there two years ago, and they had a talent show like for Christmas with, with like, you know, gift bags for everybody. Like it was very therapeutic. And as I was, you know, kind of mentioning about before with teaching the cops, like how to work with people with mental illness, there's a whole faction of people that are saying, if you're, you know, encouraging restoration in jails, you're encouraging people to stay in correctional about situations when they're really, really sick. I also know that it's unrealistic and it, it doesn't make sense to, well, let's just build all of these hospitals to make room for all of these people. Um, the default setting should be that people are getting restoration on an outpatient basis, meaning there's programs outside the hospital, outside the jail that are happening. 
by far that should be the default. But also not everybody in jail can be safe in the community, but they also might not warrant psychiatric inpatient committal. Um, so having that spectrum of competency services is really important and it's also very controversial. So for sorry, um, just to be clear on the controversy, what, so you're on the pro competency restoration in jail, as long as it's done well side. I think we're on the like pro whatever works side. Like what's the, and I don't, I don't mean that ton, tongue in cheek wise. I think like what, what we know is that this problem is so big, like Lauren said it and I'll emphasize it. Like there are competency issues across the country in so many States and so many jurisdictions, there's so many lawsuits going on and it's um, any way we can tackle this and we can, any way we can tackle the problem that is science-based that suggests that we're doing it in an empirical way that is also person focused and humane is what I'm pro. And I said, we're, I'm sorry, Lauren, I didn't mean to talk for you, but um, yeah. So if jail-based is it, I'm pro that. If community-based is it, and that is definitely what we would default to, I'm pro that. Um, I think the issue comes, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm like tying stuff together that doesn't really um, need to be tied together, but I'm thinking again at, at the like, burn it all to the ground versus working within your system. And maybe the burn it all to the ground is you shouldn't have anybody who's sick in the, in jail. They should be out in the community or in a hospital setting. And I would support that, except we're working in a system where perhaps the safest place for them to be is in jail, or perhaps we aren't in a climate where they can be in the community. They, um, the climate that we're working in necessitates, uh, not necessitates, the climate that we're working in um, is such that they will they'll be in jail until they're um, restored. Yeah. So, so the anti side is, you know, it's just ideologically or morally wrong to, uh, I don't know, give the jail system credibility by also providing mental health services, and you should just be working as hard as you can to get people out of it. So maybe an example that would help to illustrate the anti side is that. Like right now, Alabama is about to build new prisons. And the ostensible reason for that is that Alabama's prisons are terrible, some of the worst in the country. Um, and so they're one of the reasons that they're terrible is that they're overcrowded and understaffed. Um, and so the reason that KIV, our governor, gives for building new prisons is that this will make prisons better. Like they'll be nicer and newer and they won't be as overcrowded. But you can obviously see how somebody who is um, uh, generally like opposed to prisons or even somebody who is pro-prison reform might wish that that money was going towards, um, for instance, hospitals or mental health care or community resources um, rather than like dumping millions of more dollars into a prison system that houses also, I think, way more people than the average state in in the United States. Um, so I think like, yeah, with like, oh, should we provide people with, um, mental health care in prisons? It starts to be like, okay, well, why shouldn't we do that? But when it starts to be like, oh, should we spend these millions and millions of dollars building new prisons? Um, then I can start to see why people are like, okay, let's stop like trying to make prisons nice and start like trying to come up with alternatives. 
That's a great example for the teaching crisis intervention team training for the cops to jail-based stuff. It's kind of like, what's real? What's realistic? What's the most humanistic? There's the ideal situation that I want to work for, but then it's always like, are you working against it by making these kind of incremental approvals? Yeah, I just don't see a world in which... I mean, the alternative of let's just reduce the prison population by half so everybody has room, especially in Alabama, it just does not seem plausible to me. So then it really feels like, you know, letting your ideological aspirations be the enemy of like a improvement of the quality of life of people who actually have to be in the prison. But there are lots of places that have fewer people incarcerated, right? So it's not like some like um, sort of... Yeah, right. So like European countries where, first of all, like you get 10 years for murdering somebody, which, you know, a lot of Americans are just not going to go along with. And then there's a, those are countries with way less violent crime than the U.S. has. So like you're just talking about a really different country at that point. You're talking about a fantasy of a country that now doesn't exist. And it just seems irresponsible to me to say that should be the basis of our policymaking. I just don't, I'm just not convinced that like it's a fantasy to imagine um, Alabama or other places in the United States having like a lower incarcerated population. Like historically, those that time has existed. It exists in other places within the United States. It exists within other places within the world. Like, I don't know. I mean, Alabama is exceptionally bad. So to, to treat it as though it's like the natural like state of things that can't be changed seems seems um, wrong. I mean, you're you're the Alabama expert, not me, obviously. That's what they call me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's no it's important to point out that, you know, the last time that Jenny and I checked the stats, because we just wrote a grant for this, um, Alabama was ranked seventh in poverty, we were ranked seventh in crime, and we were ranked like last for mental health resources. And then of course, we're, you know, one of the states with the highest incarcerated population, um, and a lot of um, unsavory prison stats by far. Um, So much of the poverty and Trauma is like cyclical and a lot of the evaluations that I do, because my private practice is all federal, a lot of my offenses are felon in possession of a firearm, which like automatically becomes federal essentially. And folks are carrying guns because they legitimately have a fear that they're going to be shot themselves. Birmingham and Montgomery and Mobile are very, very dangerous. Um, I'm not saying that people are, you know, should not have consequences for carrying guns when they already have felony convictions in their past. But there's so much like complex PTSD and trauma that go overlooked. And if we had much more of a intervention, um, especially trauma focused on folks that were reentering or even like on first arrest, if people were even getting screened, it would make a huge difference. Like those things could really, really help people from getting out of the system um, and then also like having more economic prosperity and, you know, well-being recidivism should not be the like main outcome. Okay. This, this brings me on. to another question that I wanted to ask, which is both, both of you, I think are um, involved in, in a set of studies that are designed to optimize the use of the 988 mental health emergency line. Um, I didn't know what that was before I read about this. Um so could you tell us a little bit about the 988 
line and how that works? Alexa, you would not be alone in that. So yeah, most people haven't heard of 90 Day and don't know what it is. In 2020, and I think it was August of 2020, Congress passed a bill establishing 98 as a national mental health crisis line. So the thought, or I, I guess the impetus for this bill was that 911 should not be the place where people are calling when they're in mental health crisis, that um, reaching law enforcement um, and getting a law enforcement response to mental health crisis was not economically advantageous. It wasn't um, humane. It was problematic for all the reasons that we've already talked about, right? So Congress in 2020 passed this law and uh, it was a federal law. And they said, okay, states, 988 is now, it, in July of 2022, 988 will be a national mental health crisis line figure it out. So um, what that meant was that each state and jurisdictions within each state had to figure out what that meant for that state. Um, now, we've been talking about Alabama and kind of the problems with Alabama. I think um, maybe I've been here too long, but <laughs> I think that Alabama and the Deep South um, get a potentially much deserved bad reputation and mental health care is not um, rainbows and butterflies in other places in the country. Um, the One of the cases that is not the subject of what we're talking about right now, but one of the cases that's really driven some of the work that we've done was in Washington state. Um, some of the work that's been done in the field is, been, is in Washington state. So this is really at the country level, problematic. We've neglected mental health care as a nation. So with this 988 rollout, um, all of the states had to grapple with, okay, well, how do we do this? If somebody calls 988, what happens next? Um, so we were really fortunate to get involved in looking at 988 rollout in Alabama to try and understand kind of what 988 would look like uh, rolling out in the deep South, given kind of just the uniqueness of the culture here and the laws here. Um, and um, again, the Sozose Foundation was just so amazing in supporting us with this, where um, they were able to give us some support, some resources and funding so that we could understand what the, the 988 rollout would look like in Alabama. So what we what I've learned, what we've learned, Lauren and I have um, talked to law enforcement. We're about to talk to individuals with lived experience, doing some focus groups, um, just trying to learn about their experiences with mental health crisis calls. So law enforcement don't like them. They don't want to be the ones to um, to respond to mental health crisis calls. Um, they don't want to be the ones they want, they want clinicians to do them. Um, I've said this in a million meetings. And so I think Lauren might roll her eyes, but like, just like you won't give me a gun and ask me to chase a bad guy. Cause I would be terrible at it. Um, law enforcement don't want to be the ones to respond to mental health crisis calls. So we have a couple studies where we're talking to law enforcement and talking to individuals with lived experience to try and get their, um, perspectives on what has worked and what has not worked. With the end goal of then giving these data to Alabama legislatures so that then they can decide 
if they want to allocate money to the 988 initiative, which would subsequently mean if somebody calls 988, there would be a person on the end of the line. So if legislatures, if legislators give money, if allocate money to 988 initiatives, to various crisis centers, call centers that would support 988, then if someone's in mental health crisis, the individual will call 988 and at the end of the line will be a counselor, a mental health professional that can then connect them with resources in their community. Um, it's a really um, exciting thing to be a part of. It's happening happening nationally. And we're really grateful because Sozose Foundation also has connected us with just stuff that's going on across the country with how other jurisdictions are handling 988 and what other folks are doing with how it, with figuring out what this is going to look like. And so we can learn from that, right? We can look at what's working in Alabama and what's not working um, and learn from other groups to see what they're doing and see how it might apply to Alabama. Um, hopefully with the end goal that 98 can really stick. And when someone is in crisis, instead of calling 911 and having an officer with a gun show up, they can call 988 and be connected to the resources that they need. That's very cool. I didn't come up with the idea, but I'll take I'll take credit for it. Alexa, do we want to follow up on that or are we do we want to go to the fun question? Let's go to the fun question. Yeah, it's time for a fun question, but you should ask it. Um, I hope we agree on the fun question. <laughs> I hope so too. Ask it and let's find out. Um, I'm looking at Lauren's <laughs> face right now and we're both terrified by what the fun question might be. <laughs> Um, my fun question is, um, so to me, both of you seem um, like people who have made it. Um, so you, you're you very successful and you're doing work that has like obvious meaning and importance. And so I want to know, like, do you feel like you've made it? Or is that feeling an illusion? Was that the question you were thinking of, you all? Yes. I'll let tenure Jenny Shit, I was going to make you go first. <laughs> Um, so yes and no, I think, do I feel like anything I've done is going to have an impact? Uh, no, not yet. I have three small people. I will say like, as a mom, I like the three small people impact good or bad. They exist, um, hopefully for the good. Um, that feels important. Um, the work that I'm doing in my career feels like um, well, honestly, not yet, not yet. Um, and I'm probably closer to feeling more impactful now than I was five years ago. Um, what I will say, and, um, Lauren has no idea that I was going to say this. Um, so this is my on-air proposal to her or re-proposal is that I, 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 one thing that I think I've done really well is surround myself with people who, are big, bright thinkers who make me better in my work. And so um, Lauren and some other people that I work with are just trailblazers. And one thing that I think, one way that I feel like I've made it is I've like hitched my ride to the white rag, <laughs> to the right wagons. Um, and I'm working with people who make me better and who I believe are making the field better. Um, 
Yeah. So that's where I'm at. Not yet. Maybe in a couple of years, we can check back in in like five years. This is a classic Jenny response. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, eh, you know, underselling yourself all that. But it's but okay. true. I mean, that, that's genuinely how I feel. Um, yeah. But also though, I'm on a podcast right now. So like, obviously. So now you have made it clearly. Now I've made it. This is, you know, that this is going on my annual review <laughs> for, you know, what's happening. <laughs> I'm glad that Thanks. you answered Thanks honestly, you Jenny, because, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's like sort of comforting. Maybe it could be comforting for our listeners to hear um, that that people who seem like they clearly have made it don't necessarily feel that way. So the feeling um, that you're far away from making it, I don't know. Maybe sometimes it's real and maybe sometimes it's illusory. What would you say, Lauren? Well, we're now going to hear from Lauren, who's going to say that she's completely made it. <laughs> um, well, I'm have not gone up for tenure yet. So there's that. All right. Um, so I am a university assistant professor. So there's that thing. Um, I think, you know, the imposter syndrome thing, like a thousand percent, I think that I have had a lot of big wins in the last year that have made me feel like, okay, all right. Okay. I'm going like, I'm figuring some stuff out. I'm doing some stuff. Like I'm getting some momentum. Um, that's still like when someone asks you to collaborate, who was all over your dissertation, like citing them and stuff like that, like asks you to work with them on stuff. It's still like, what? They know who I am. Am I going to embarrass myself? Um, but I think that those kinds of things like chip away and, you know, why not you? You're, you really care about the stuff. You work really hard. You're advocating for these people that a lot of people are not advocating for, um, and the imposter syndrome is a thousand percent still there. And I always feel like I'm not doing enough. Um, but I'd say like over the past like eight months, I've started to feel a lot better. And Jenny and I have that extra piece where we're testifying. So every time you go up and you testify and you don't humiliate yourself and you do a good job and you're proud of how you've done, those are big confidence boosters, honestly. Um, and Jenny and I have both testified in front of a, a very um, a very respected, um, very important judge in our state several times. Um, and we get called back to do evaluations for him. And that's really a big honor. And I think that that kind of speaks to um, kind of the impact that we're having as well. So imposter syndrome still there, not tenured, feeling better. Long yeah, story. Yeah, too I was long gonna story. Say, like, TLDR is basically like imposter syndrome never goes away. It just slowly gets slightly less. Alexa, as uh, a tenured person, <laughs> homeowner, and well-known podcast host, you've you've got it made. I totally right? made it. You know, you yeah. made it for years. Yeah. I could I could <laughs> feel the confidence beaming out of you, <laughs> all the way up here to Montreal. I could feel it hitting me. Yeah. It's kind of like a warm glow because it is. he's, you know, the 70 degree weather. It's so like being in the sun. Warming him up. Exactly right. <laughs> yep. So this has been great having you on. Anything else that you want to mention, plug, get out there uh, before we wrap it? That's like the hardest question. Yeah. Like, okay. So I want to know from you guys, like, what do you, well, and I, it's probably, I'm putting you on the spot. So I recognize if this was terrible and you don't want to be honest with us, but like, what do you think after we've had this conversation about mental illness and the criminal legal system and kind of how, like, 
what do you think we're doing right? What should we do better? Have you learned anything? Was this a useless waste of your life for the last hour and a half? Oh, sure. I mean, I feel like, um, I mean, honestly, when, when you said before, like, or we're not trying to hand out hugs, like, I think I'm, I'm the like naive person who doesn't know like the things on the ground, the way that you two do, who is like, you know, let's, let's just like move away from any kind of retribution and, um, yeah, like get rid of the prisons and hug everyone. Um, so, uh, basically I feel like, um, I, I trust everything that you guys say. I think you have this sort of like balance between, um, like an ideal in your minds that I suspect is probably similar to mine and then like a much more concrete understanding of how systems actually work and ways to make progress. And like, I mean, when you, when you think about the, the contrast between the like burn it down people and the work within the system people, I tend to be, I think the latter, even though maybe like when you ask me about my most idealistic version, it's more like the former. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, decriminalizing mental health seems like an extremely valuable goal and a very real problem that I think you guys are addressing in real ways. I feel like I can channel a little bit of the like law and order feeling, um, but I think what's great about what you guys are saying totally seriously is like it doesn't rely on kind of a set of political commitments in order to be persuasive. So if you're the sort of person who's persuaded by it's just more cost effective not to house people who need mental health treatments in prisons and then repeatedly cycle them through, um, I think you have a great case for those people. The I want to give everybody hugs people obviously are going to be on board already, right? So you've you've sold Alexa, but like I think like you guys have pointed out like what your challenge is is convincing people who don't share those preconceptions so that might be law enforcement that might be legislators in conservative states right you need to you need to pitch to them and i think you have a really good way of doing that and a, a very persuasive argument that this is not only more just and humane but also just leads to better outcomes, right? Has better consequences. I think so. We're playing playing the long game. Yeah, we hope, <laughs> yeah, we hope so. Um, I'm also like, I don't know, it, it makes me happy to hear that um, just there are different perspectives going on, right? And like, how, how are we going to get at all of them? How are we going to talk to, um, how are we going to co- not convince people, but inform people and then let them make their own decisions about, what is important um, to fund in this space. So anyway, thank you for having us. I'd actually like to add one thing that I think is important, if you don't mind, sorry, Yoel, um, is that we, w- one thing that we're not good at is we are not good at including people with lived experience. So if you go to our conference, um, there's not a lot of people that um, it's necessarily known that they might have mental illness or substance use histories um, or that they are formally incarcerated. And to make a comparison, I identify as a woman. I can't imagine going to a conference and it's all men doing the research and presenting. Um, that is 
unacceptable to me. And that's really what a lot of our organizations are doing by not including people that actually know the system and their experiences a lot better than we do. Um, and that's something that we, we need to prioritize in our field. Um, and I would just encourage everyone that does this work to do that as well, which Jenny and I are working on in terms of recruitment. And this is why um, I said I hang out with brilliant people and then just, you know, ride on their coattails because Lauren's absolutely right. Great. Um, I think we're good, Alexa. I think that's that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, guys.